Good morning. Our scripture reading comes from Ruth 4, verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joe. Uh, Good morning. Um, That is not necessarily the most um, Christmassy passage you've ever heard read uh, at an Advent um, series. So let me just say a few things setting up uh, our time together this morning. Let me say a few things about what we're doing here at Midtown during Advent season. Um, Historically, Uh, The church, the people of God, uh, have paused during this season, during this piece of the calendar year, and we pause and we look back, and what we look back at is we look back at the coming of Jesus, the Christmas story, the the, the coming of the Messiah into the world, which which begins on the first page of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, and we, we do that and we pause and we look back, but it's far more than just sentimentality, it's far more than just we need a reason for the lights and we need a reason for the season, whatever the heck that means. And we need, it's far more than just uh, this is what we do. See, because the, the season has come to be known as Advent season, which is, is great, but that's, been, that's become synonymous with Christmas, which it is. But the term Advent gets lost on us because Advent is a term that literally just means the arrival or the appearing. And Christians in the Bible didn't invent the word Advent. Advents happened all the time in the ancient world. Emperors and rulers and kings would advent among their people in different villages and different towns. They would appear, they would arrive. An announcement that advent was coming from the king or from the emperor spread throughout the kingdom. And so these villages would begin to gather and await the advent of their king. And they would, they would begin to wait expectantly. And when is this advent going to happen? And when is, when is our king going to advent among us? When will he appear? And so you can imagine the, the waiting and the hoping and the expectation and the nerves and the doubts and going, wait, is he going to Advent or is he not going to? And so all that is built into the term Advent, that Advent comes with it a, 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 a thought of, man, if I'm waiting for an Advent, that's going to be scary and that's going to be, um, I'm, it's going to be full of anxiety and expectation and hope. And so the people of God in the Old Testament for thousands of years were awaiting an advent. They were awaiting an advent of their promised Messiah, and they were waiting and hoping, expecting and doubting. I don't know if he's going to come. It's been 100 years since he's talked to us, and he said he was going to come. He said he was going to advent, but maybe he won't. And then after thousands of years of waiting, literally tens of thousands of years, King Jesus advents among his people. Christmas happened, and the greatest advent in history took place. The promised Messiah advented among his people. And so now, we in the church, God's people, are, are, are on the other side of the first advent. We're, we're on the other side of Christ having come. We're on the other side of the Christmas story. 
And so we turn to look back and remember the Christmas story, but we don't just turn to look back just so that we can remember. We ourselves find ourselves waiting, just like the Old Testament people of God, for an advent. That not only has Jesus come once, Jesus has promised to come again. And the experience of us waiting on the second advent is a whole lot like the people waiting on the first advent. We're waiting, we're doubting, we're expecting, we're hopeful, we're wondering, is it going to come true? I'm not sure. Many days don't feel like it. I bet he's a liar. Maybe it's not going to happen. And so we are a people between the advents. And as a people between the advents, we look back, we pause, we take time every year. It's a forming practice. It forms us, it shapes us, that as we look back and we rehearse the details of the first advent, it gives us this new strength, it gives us this newfound hope that we are almost saying to ourselves, we're going to rehearse the story of the first advent because our Jesus advented once among us, surely he will do it again. That it's hard to believe that he's actually going to advent again. It's hard to believe that he's going to, be, he's going to come true on his promises. But we share in that, that experience with the people of God in the Old Testament, and we remember that he came through on his promises once. So as we wait, we look at those who waited before, and as we hope for the advent, we look back at the first one in between the advent. So that's why we do advent. And we are doing advent a little bit differently this year as we rehearse the, the first advent story to give us strength and hope as we await the second advent, we turn to the first page of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. It's the beginning of the story of the first advent of Jesus. And the beginning of the story of the first advent of Jesus doesn't start with a narrative. It doesn't start with a story. It starts with a seemingly boring list of names. It's known as the genealogy of Jesus. It's Jesus' family tree. It's Jesus' 23andMe. It's Jesus' ancestry. It's, it's, it's the lineage of Jesus listing um, lots and lots of generations of, of Jesus' parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and all the, all the way back up. And we read this list of genealogy, this list of names, and we go, that's kind of boring. Let's just get to the story part. But what a first century reader, the original reader of Matthew would have known is, that's not boring. That buried in the genealogy of Jesus is a story. The genealogies proved where someone came from. It gave them clout. It gave them a reputation if your genealogy mattered. It also proved who you were and what line you came from. Kings that were stepping into a throne had to prove their genealogy, that this is my rightful place. So part of it is proving that Jesus is who he needs to be based on promises and based on lineage. But here, what we're studying this, this year is we're looking at this genealogy and buried within it is something so odd and so peculiar. Is that how you say that word? It's so weird. <laughs> In the list of Jesus' genealogy is the names of five women. So any reader in the first century would have seen these women's names and they would have taken a step back and gone, well, first of all, in first century patriarchal society, women don't make the appearances in genealogies. That doesn't give the person at the end of that genealogy any clout or reputation. So why in the world are women in this genealogy? But more than that, more than women being in the genealogy, anybody who is familiar with the Old Testament would read the names of the women in Jesus' genealogy and say, why are those women in the genealogy? These women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary, all these women are outsiders. All these women are excluded. All these women have shattered stories. All of them experienced hopelessness. And so the question begins to come off the page in Matthew chapter 1, the, the beginning of the story of the first advent of Jesus. Why in the world would Jesus write these women into his story? They're stories of incest, stories of prostitution and pagans and sexual abuse victims. 
All these women, by their very stories, would have been excluded. All these women, by their stories, would have been cast out. But now, with the coming of Jesus, Jesus is saying at the, at the um, birth of his very bringing the kingdom of God into earth, at, the, at, the, at his first advent, he's saying a different kind of kingdom, kingdom is coming into the world because these women would have been excluded by their stories. I'm telling you, my kingdom came to bring them in. My kingdom came to welcome those who have been cast out. My kingdom came to turn your world upside down. That I don't care what your family tree is, I don't care what your family history is or your family sister system is, none of that can ever be used as proof that Jesus would not welcome you in. His own family tree is telling you a different story. And so what we're looking at is these women who have stories of their own, we're going back into the Old Testament to study their stories and to see what happened to them. But then we're not just stopping with their stories, we're studying them to see how do these women forecast and foreshadow the first advent of Jesus? How do these women tell us the story of Christmas by their very lives? And so we've looked at Tamar, which if you weren't here, please go back and listen to it. It is an incredible story back in the book of Genesis. And then last week we looked at the story of Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. And now we come to the next woman in Jesus' genealogy, the woman of Ruth. And what was just read for us by Joseph was the end of the story of Ruth. Ruth is just four chapters. Joseph read for us the last paragraph of the story, the concluding paragraph. But that conclusion doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you don't know the first three and a half chapters. And so as a brief overview, we're going to retell the story of Ruth and see what is going on in her story and see what God's doing in her story. And then we're going to see how does this story tell us about Christmas? How does this story tell us about Advent? Well, the opening line of the book of Ruth, um, the setting of the scene for the story of Ruth begins this way. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem took his family to the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Let me read that opening line for you one more time. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and so a man takes his family from that place to a country of Moab. The time when the judges ruled, that sets the scene. Anytime you hear that biblically, it's, it's referenced a lot. Anytime you hear the time when the judges ruled, your immediate connotation should be chaos. The whole book of Judges is a disaster. It's a tornado of destruction. It's not pretty. And all of Israel is suffering under the, the fact that there is no king in the land. And these judges were ruling and they were terrible rulers. And everybody's doing whatever they want to do and they're killing each other and they're rebelling and it's awful. The time of the judges equals chaos. And so Ruth, we're told, in the days when the judges ruled, ding, 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 chaos. Not only that, is it chaos in the land of Israel, but then the next verse says, there was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land of Bethlehem. Famine and chaos in Bethlehem. It's the first line of the story of Ruth. Bethlehem, there's a little bit of uh, literary irony going on here. There's chaos in the land and there's famine in the land. Bethlehem is, is two Hebrew words mashed together. Beit, Beth, and Lechem, Bethlehem. Beit means house and Lechem means bread, house of bread or bakery. <laughs> um, there's famine in the bakery. There's, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. There's emptiness everywhere. The way things are supposed to be working, there's famine in the bakery. 
There's nothing happening the way it's supposed to be happening. There's chaos and emptiness happening in the land of God's people. And so one of those people, a random man named Elimelech, who's got a wife named Naomi, takes him and his two sons to the land of Moab, who we'll get to them in a minute. They were historically enemies of Israel. They were historically uh, kind of the, the obnoxious neighbor who they were always fighting and always killing each other. This man sells his land, leaves everything behind, says, I'm going to find a better life with our enemies. And then in the next three verses, this is famine and chaos in the land of God's people. The next three verses, it gets worse. This man, Elimelech, who took his family away from Bethlehem and sold everything he had to leave and go to Moab, dies. And then his sons marry two Moabite women, which was a no-no. They marry two Moabite women, and then they die. So now we have three widows in the first five verses of Ruth. One Israelite and two Moabite women, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. Everyone is grieving. Everyone is lacking. Everyone is empty. It's all broken. It's all lost. It's all over. And Naomi embodies the state of things. She's empty. She's lost. It's all over for her. It's chaotic in her life and in her land. She is the picture of God and his people. It's not working. So Naomi, empty, chaotic, sorrowful, grieving, decides to leave Moab and head back to Israel. She decides to leave her two daughters-in-law and say to them, hey, you stay here. You have a life ahead of you in Moab. You stay here. I will return. She actually changes her name. She says, my name used to be Naomi, which, which means the blessed one, but that's not true anymore. Now call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I used to be blessed, but now I'm bitter. I'm renaming myself. I'm renaming my story. This is the way things have gone. This is the way things are going to go. You stay here, and I'm going back, she says to these two Moabite women. Brief word about Moabites. Ruth was a Moabite. Brief word about her little history. Moabites lived in the land of Moab, and they descended from a man named Moab. And so there's been several generations since the Moabites started their their people and their land. They were a neighbor of Israel. They were always fighting. But let me tell you a little bit about Moab, where Moab came from, this man who had this whole people and this whole land. Moab was the son of Lot. Lot goes all the way back to Genesis, um, early days of Genesis, Genesis chapter 19. Lot, remember Sodom and Gomorrah, his wife turns into a pillar of salt. You don't have to know that story. It's fascinating. Go back and read that story. I'm not going to tell that story this morning. So Lot ends up leaving Sodom and Gomorrah with his two daughters, and they're living in a cave in Genesis chapter 19. And Lot and his daughters living in a cave, his daughters decide, you know what, life's kind of over. We just saw mom turn into a pillar of salt, rough day. It's not going very well for us. And so our life is not on a good trajectory. So Lot's daughters, this is in the Bible, I'm not making this up. Lot's daughters decide, you know what, we don't have any offspring. We don't have any husbands. We're living in a cave. And so here's our best option. Let's get dad drunk. Let's get dad so drunk they take alternating nights. Let's, take, let's get dad so drunk that he won't even know what's happening to him. And let's sleep with dad to impregnate ourselves with dad's kids. And so Lot's oldest daughter, Lot's firstborn daughter, does this on night one in the cave, and she becomes pregnant. Her first child, Moab. So Moab is a product of a drunken night of incest. And these are the people that descended from him. It doesn't start off well. Think you've got a messed up family system? This is, this is where Moab comes from. Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth descended from Moab. 
And this Moabite widow named Ruth hears that her mother-in-law is leaving Moab to go back to Israel, to go back to Bethlehem. And Ruth says, no, you're not going alone. I'm going to come with you, and your God's going to be my God, and your people are going to be my people, and where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. It gets read at weddings. It's not quite the, the wedding scene. It's a, lot more, it's a lot darker than that. And so, so Ruth says, no, no, I want your God. I come from a people that has some messed upness. I don't care how messed up the Israelites are. It's better than what I've got. So she says, I'm coming with you, and I'm sticking by you, and we'll be widows together in Israel. So these two women, Ruth and Naomi, return to Bethlehem in utter poverty. It's tough to describe the the place on the social ladder they would have been. No husband, no land, no income, no children. They are immediately at the bottom of the bottom. These are immediately the poorest of the poor in Bethlehem. And one of the customs in those days was that if they're the poorest of the poor could come to the, the fields of landowners and the reapers that would, would harvest the field during harvest season, they were told by their landowners, hey, if some falls out of your, your, your pack, if, if, if there's some scraps that fall on the ground from the harvesting, leave them. And all the scraps on the floor, all the scraps on the ground in the dirt, uh, we'll leave for the poorest of the poor to come behind us and maybe they can get... Um, a snack. Maybe they can get a day's meal out of what we leave behind for them. So Naomi tells Ruth about this custom and says, hey, you're going to have to go find somewhere to be a gleaner. You're going to have to find somewhere to come behind the reapers and just get what falls on. If we're going to eat tonight, I need you to go and go find us some food that is left behind for people like us. So Ruth, this Moabite convert widow, begins gleaning in the field of a random man named Boaz in the hills of Bethlehem. We're told that Boaz uh, is a noble and worthy man. Boaz hears of this woman's plight, this foreign widow's plight who has nothing, who's lost everything. And go read this in in Ruth chapter 2. All of chapter 2 is Boaz hearing about Ruth, this poorest of the poor, this widow, this foreign woman who has nothing. He hears about her and he goes to her. And he dotes on her and he treats her like royalty and he gives her all these rights and privileges. You can use my water, you can have my food, you take whatever you need, this is, this is not enough for you. And he actually sends her home on her first day of work with like over a month's supply of wheat and barley. He says, hey, hey, t- t- take all of it, take all of it. I'm gonna send you home with donkeys full uh, of food for you and your mother-in-law. Boaz is a noble man. He treats this foreign widow like royalty. And if we zoom out for a moment, we would find something remarkable about Boaz. Boaz was the son of Salmon, the husband of Rahab. Boaz is the son of Rahab. Rahab, we studied her last week. She's the prostitute from Jericho. And so you can imagine this now. This is what's so fun to let our imaginations get into the biblical narrative, get into the biblical story. How do you think Boaz was raised to think about foreign oppressed downtrodden women? What do you think Rahab, his mom, taught him? I don't know. I don't care what else you do in this house. In this house, you will treat foreign outsider women with respect because that's me and that's why I'm here. <laughs> of all the things that you will be in this house, you will go to the, to the outcast. You will care for the widow. You will care for a woman who has had life crush her because that's my story, son. So Boaz's mama raised him well. He's a man of noble character who was taught to defend the weak, to care for the outsider. 
you will love on those, son, that have been forgotten and excluded. So you can imagine Boaz hearing about this woman that's in his field that is a widow that has nothing, who's from another country, and he's going, oh, I've got to go find her. I've got to make mama proud. I'm going to go find this woman. I'm going to treat her well. That's what I was taught to do. So Ruth gets home from this gleaning and tells Naomi, her mother-in-law, about this wonderful man named Boaz, and Naomi loses her mind. Boaz, it's a good-looking boy. Boaz <laughs> says, she, she hears about Bo, Boaz, Boaz. How come I didn't think about Boaz? She says to Ruth when Ruth comes home, I, yeah, I gleaned in this field, and this really rugged man came up to me and, and treated me with so much respect and dignity, and he gave me donkeys full of, of, of food, and she goes, Boaz, he's a kinsman redeemer. And Ruth, you know, a Moabite woman going, a, a kinsman what? And so she goes, well, kinsman redeemer, Ruth, is that any, anybody that's a widow, anybody that um, has lost everything, lost their land, lost their field, lost their lineage, lost their husband, a kinsman redeemer is the next of kin, kinsman, who has the right legally to redeem them. Meaning, anyone who's related to us has the right, if they have the financial means, has the right to buy back the land that we sold when we left Bethlehem a generation ago. And so this man, if he can, if he's able, he's able to buy back our land. And not only that, when he buys back the land, he gets a two-for-one deal. He gets you as a wife. That he actually gets to buy us all back. He gets to redeem us. If he's got the means and he's got the character and he's got the will, he can do this for us. He could buy our land back. He could set this right. And he could marry you and he could give you a son. He could do this for you. You're a widow. You thought it was all over, but he can do that if he, if he will. So Ruth goes to Boaz and pleads with him and he, he says, yes, I, I, I would love to redeem you. And then they find out that there's a kinsman redeemer that's one generation or one, one step closer into the family tree that Boaz was. And so he's got the first right of refusal. And he goes, that costs way too much money. I certainly don't want to marry some foreign widow who I, from Moab. No, thank you. And so Boaz is the next in line and he shows up and he does just that. He redeems Ruth. He redeems the family. He redeems the land. He redeems the line. And then we come to the passage that Joseph read for us. The end of the book of Ruth. We're told Boaz and Ruth are married, and Ruth has a baby, a baby boy named Obed. And the book closes with this scene of these women celebrating Naomi, dancing around Naomi, rejoicing that Naomi got to experience this. But the book's called Ruth. So why does the story end with Naomi being the one that celebrated Naomi? Ruth is better than seven sons to you. And Naomi, your story, look at what God did in your story. It's because, like we said at the beginning, Naomi is the representation of all things Israel. Naomi is the representation of the barren and bitter one. Naomi is the representation of chaos. Remember how her story starts? And then all is restored and she is redeemed. Her ashes have been turned into beauty. Naomi loses her husband, loses her sons, she loses her family line, she loses all hope. And yet her story doesn't end in chaos and emptiness like it began. Her story ends in peace and in fullness and in rejoicing. She is the story of God's people. Like, this is who you are, Naomi, as your uh, representative. Let me show you what happens to her. That's the story of this little four-chapter book in the Old Testament, the story of Ruth. That's the story of one of the great-great-grandmothers of Jesus, a pagan woman descended from a family of incest, a widow with no hope, leaves her homeland a pauper 
commits her life to her mother-in-law, which is a feat, uh, and, and ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. And there's a lot to pull from this story. In fact, about six or seven years ago when I first came on staff, we, we preached a sermon series on Ruth, and we're going to cover it all in one morning, apparently. But there's a lot to cover. I know we're leaving a lot out. But here's where our focus needs to be drawn today as we study the story of Ruth and then allow that to hurl us to the story of Jesus and the story of Advent. Please do not miss in this story the details. The details of Ruth. The story that begins with chaos and famine in the land, death, loss, emptiness, sorrow, grief, Like if all you were to do was to read the first 16 or 17 verses of the book of Ruth and pause, you would have to ask this story. Why in the world is God in his very scripture, in his word, in his holy word, why is he dedicating an entire book to seemingly three random widows in Moab? Like why does he even care about these people? These people are, they've left Israel, they're out, and now there's death and sorrow, and it it seems empty, it seems chaotic, it seems tragic, but why is God giving any attention to these three random widows in Moab? It's odd. And you can read the first couple of paragraphs of the story, and the story doesn't have a whole lot of hope or expectation, and that's very intentional. That if I were just to tell you the details of the first part of the story, and then pause and say, hey, you, analyzer of facts, tell me, based on the facts of these women's lives so far, Tell me, based on the facts of what these women are experiencing in the present at the end of chapter one, tell me how you think this story is going to go. Tell me what your conclusion about this story is going to be. Look at what's going on, study the story so far, and you tell me how this is all going to end. Many of us, when we come to the stories of our lives or the story of the life of the world, we look at the facts, we look at what we can see, and we look at how things are going, and we make ultimate conclusions about how this storyline is going to work out. We decide, we write the story, we write the narrative, we tell you how it's going to go down. This doesn't have any seemingly redemptive end because I can't see one yet, and so I'm telling you this is how it's going to end. In the entire book of Ruth, this is quite fascinating, the storyteller of the book of Ruth never mentions God doing anything. God is not mentioned one time by the narrator. God is mentioned by people speaking, by Israelites talking, but God is actually never, from the storyteller's point of view, he's never talked about doing anything. God himself is never described with any action, but secretly, subtly, the story keeps throwing out hints that all is not lost. Ruth comes back to Bethlehem, and listen to how the narrator describes, when Ruth gets back to Bethlehem, listen to how the narrator describes how she got to the field of Boaz. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, and Ruth happened to come to the field of Boaz. And it just so happened that Ruth decided randomly, seemingly, to glean in a field of a possible kinsman redeemer that she didn't know at the time, and the field of a man raised by a prostitute 
outsider who would maybe take a liking to her, and just so happened that it was the field of a man of noble character, and the man of a kinsman redeemer that had the means financially to buy the family back and redeem them. Is it Ruth? <laughs> Sorry. Is that me? And it just so happened. Or did it? See, one of the great things about Ruth, that if you put Ruth up against almost any other narrative book of the Bible, any other book that's telling a story about God's people, one thing that you would notice is that there are no miracles. There are no dreams. There are no visions. There is no God coming to Ruth and telling her, turn left and turn right, and oh no, there's Boaz's field, and you need to make sure you choose that one. There's no seemingly miraculous activity of God in this story. And yet, and yet, behind the scenes, God is writing a story in the shadows. God is writing a story to redeem Ruth and Naomi, and none of us can tell from the details of the story. Like, you don't hear God saying, and then I chose to make sure Ruth got to Naomi, or got to Boaz's field because he's really going to take care of her and it's all going to work out seamlessly and, and without any hesitation or hiccups. All that the reader is encountering are these facts, facts of loss, facts of death, facts of poverty, facts of hopelessness, facts of despair, and all in the shadows of that chaos, all in the shadows of that emptiness, God is writing this grand story for Ruth and Naomi to redeem them. But bigger than that, he's not just writing a story to redeem Ruth and Naomi. If you get to the end of the story that we read, God is writing a hidden story to redeem the world. Hidden in the details of chaos and pain was a story of cosmic redemption. Let me explain that. We're told at the end of the book of Ruth that Joseph read for us that Ruth and Boaz have a son and Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed and Obed has a son named Jesse and Jesse has a son named David. And if you are a Christian in this room, anytime you hear the word David, you should think about the last song we sung before we, I started preaching, that David was promised to have a descendant that would be the king of the world forever. And he would come to redeem and make everything right. You can't hear David without getting to Jesus. That's the biblical idea. And so we're told at the end of Ruth, Ruth and Boaz get us to Obed, that gets us to Jesse, that gets us to David, and David is our direct line to Jesus. So follow that logic train back up to Ruth, and this is what Ruth is saying to us if you look at the whole Bible. No Ruth, no Jesus. And yet, in the middle of the story, nobody knows that. Nobody has any idea that that's what God is doing in the shadows, in the chaos, and in the loss, and in the poverty, and in the crying out, and in the sorrow, and in the loneliness. No one has any idea. It just so happened that Ruth got to the field of Boaz. Did it just so happen that she found the one guy that she had to marry in order for the Messiah to be born into the world? Like, did that just happen? And God goes, oh, I thought all was lost. I'm so glad Ruth found Boaz's field so that the story could continue and we get to Jesus. Or did God, in the middle of the chaos and in the middle of the grief and in the middle of the shadows that no one could see anything, was God in the mundane, broken places doing something bigger than Ruth and Naomi? The whole point of the book of Ruth is that God loves to work in the mundane even when you can't see it. God loves to work in the hard times even when you can't see it. God loves to work in the shadows even when you can't see it. That God is orchestrating this plan, yes, to redeem your life. That's what he does for Ruth and Naomi. He's yes, to redeem your life. He's also working in the shadows to redeem the life of the world. 
I had an experience this week where some random things happened and I had to bring some of the random things that I kind of found, I stumbled upon something and I had to bring it to a coworker and I said, hey, this thing happened and then that got to another coworker and, it, and, the, and the trail that started like a week ago, I finally had a precious tear-filled conversation with someone that I work with and here's what happened. It all just so happened. And here's what I said out loud this week and just so happened, I was studying Ruth so I had language to be able to say it. But here's what, I, here's what just so happened. I said, this week has been far too circumstantial to not be providential. <laughs> like the details don't make sense unless somebody is doing something behind the scenes to make this conversation happen. It's far too circumstantial to not be providential. That in the shadows, there was someone who had a pen who was writing a story and saying, yeah, I, I know that you can't see it. I know that you have no idea, and in a week, you're gonna know why this kind of thing happened and the seemingly randomness happened, but I had to get here and you didn't know where I was going. You didn't know I had to get you here, but I had to get you here. It was far too circumstantial to not be providential. This, this comes out, jumps off the page in Lord of the Rings. Yes, I'm almost done. I know I started it earlier this year. Don't judge me. I'm trying. Okay, I have three kids. You couldn't do any better, okay? But I, I started book one, Fellowship of the Ring, this summer. And then I'm, I'm about halfway through uh, Return of the King. Um, and, and in book one, in Fellowship of the Ring, we meet this random, scruffy-faced guy in a pub outside the Shire named Strider. You know, who's this guy? And there's some, there's some folklore about him, and things are being said about him. We don't know who he is. And then slowly, as the story's being unfolded, some things are beginning to be said about him, but we're still not sure. And who is he? And what's, how's all this going to make sense? Till finally, I, in, in Return of the King, where I am, he goes to the House of Healing, which is an incredible chapter. And anyone following along? Am I the only one who's just having a moment right here? And so... so <laughs> Uh, this, this Strider character, Aragorn, we now know him as, comes to the house of healing, and all these prophecies, all, these, all this waiting, that when the hands of the king come to the house of healing, he will bring healing with him. When the true king comes, there will be healing in his hands, and Aragorn goes around the house of healing and begins healing all these people, and you go, whoa, 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 this random guy in a pub that we met three books ago, that was the king? And not only was he the king, he's a king that's had 50 generations of royalty before him, but he was just this lone ranger out in the wilderness. How is it that that guy is this guy? And it begins to become more clear that this grand story is being written the whole time behind the scenes, and we had no idea. No idea what is happening until it gets revealed. But that doesn't mean that just because you can't see it, it's not happening in the shadows. It's too circumstantial to not be providential. And this is meant to be an encouragement to us. Think about this now. Like, Get into the story with me. Go back to verse 1 where there's chaos and famine in the bakery. Get, get back into Bethlehem with me where Naomi decides to leave with her husband. They sell their land. They go to Moab, and her husband dies. And her sons get married, and then they die. Go to Naomi's psyche in Moab. Go there. Imagine what she's thinking. Naomi has just lost everything. Naomi's lost all hope and all sense of if, if her story is ever going to have any hope or joy in it ever again. She knows utter grief and utter chaos and utter emptiness. She can't go back to Bethlehem. Everything's been sold. She has nothing to go back to and no family. Now go into that part of the story. You know how it ends. It's going to work out great for her. That God's going to heal that and redeem her and give her a, a daughter-in-law that loves her and give her a, a, a grandson that she gets. She's, she doesn't leave the story empty. But go back to the moment when it is empty she couldn't see it. And that's not meant to shame Naomi. She literally couldn't see it. 
All the facts of her life at that point were telling her all is lost, all is empty, all is chaos, all is sorrow. She had no idea, no idea that her story would be redeemed. She certainly, certainly had no idea that cosmic redemption was happening in her story. She's not sitting there thinking in Moab with a deceased husband and and two deceased sons, you know what, I bet the Messiah is going to come from my line. I bet it's really going to work out for us. I bet this is going to end, and I don't even need to be sad right now because it's all going to be great one day. That's not real. That she calls herself Mara, call me bitter because she's honest. This is really hard. This is excruciating. The facts of my life aren't saying that God is good to me. And some of you are in this very place right now. And there are hard things, and there are seasons, and there are questions, and there's emptiness, and there's loss, and there's hardships, and there's anger. And I say this as gently as I can. You can't see God at work. And that's not meant to shame you. That's meant to say you literally don't have any facts to tell you that God might be up to something. It's too grand of a story being told, and the present pain and chaos is too much to bear. And so here's the question before us today as we study the story of Ruth. Does God still write stories like this? Hidden in the chaos of rebellious kids, or hidden in the stress of financial famines, or hidden in the storylines and the shadows of loss and sorrow, in the shadows of your life, is it possible that God is also at work there? I'm not asking you to make that decision based on you analyzing the facts of your life, because Naomi couldn't have said it in Moab. I'm saying, is it possible that even though you can't see it, God is doing 10,000 things and you have no idea? That God is always at work for his glory and your good, even when you can't articulate it or prove it from the facts of your life? Is that possible? That that's the kind of stories that God loves to write? That God's always working in the shadows. God's always working in the hidden under the surface of things. Like What what would it do to your life if you knew that God is always doing 10,000 things and if you're lucky on one random day, you might see three of them? Like What would it do if you believed that's going on, whether or not I can see it or not? Would it make you less cynical? Would it make you less afraid? Would it make you you less anxious? Would, Would it change how you deal with your kids? They're losing it. They're, they're having a temper tantrum. They're, 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 they're infuriating you. And you start writing some story about how this is going to go for the rest of their life. You start concluding about how this is going to go forever for them. And that for you to be able to sit back and go, all that I can see is not all that God is doing. God's always doing 10,000 things, and it's always for, for my good and his glory. And I can't necessarily see it right now. Would it change how you interact in that moment? The book of Ruth is trying to say to us that in the mundane and in the hard and in the shadows, God is always at work. He's still there. He's still working. And there are signs of hope if we have eyes to see it, but even when you can't see it, there is always hope to be drawn from because God is always at work. And Ruth should tell us he loves to work in ways that you can't see. It just so happened that Ruth ended up in the field of Boaz. She's not sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, God, I totally heard you last night in my prayer and you answered my prayer. Like, he was the one doing it and she didn't even know she was doing it. He was the one writing the story and she didn't know he was writing anything. That's what the story of Ruth is saying. 
that no matter what is going on in your life, God is doing 10,000 things for his glory and your good, even when, and I would even say especially when, he seems to be absent and he appears to not care. That we have these shadows in our lives, these storylines, and here's how I deal with many of them. I'm afraid to go there. I'm afraid to talk about the shadows. I'm afraid to go to the shadows because I don't have a handle on it yet and I can't figure out a way that this is actually gonna work out and end for my good and his glory. And so I don't really wanna go there. I don't really wanna talk about it until I know how it's all gonna be okay. And here's what the story of Ruth is saying. I'm so sure God's not in the shadows. Ruth is saying, not only is he there, he's writing a story in them. He's working where you can't see him. He's working in the shadows to such a degree that you wouldn't even be able to see it. He's not just writing a story to redeem your life. He's writing a story to redeem the world. That's what he does. He writes stories of cosmic redemption into the world. But maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure. Maybe the story of Ruth doesn't quite convince you that this is the God you have and this is the God of the Bible. So hear this loud and clear from the story of Ruth. That yes, hidden in the details of chaos and pain was a story of cosmic redemption. That reality, hidden in the details of chaos and pain, was a story of cosmic redemption. That's the same story of Christmas. That if you go back and you look at the Christmas story, we've got an unwed, pregnant teenager which is really hard to compare to today, really hard to articulate the amount of public shame she would have felt, the amount of outcastness she would have felt, the, the amount of um, confusion and questions. Like, go to her dinner table when she starts showing. And Mary's dad starts going, so how are you pregnant again? And she goes, Dad, I can't explain it. An angel told me, and he said the Holy Spirit would make me pregnant. Does that make you happy, Dad? Like, that doesn't solve anything. That doesn't help in the chaos. And then we've got a guy named Joe, Joseph, who's saying, swear I didn't sleep with her, but I'm gonna stay with her, I think. And then all this is happening, and then, and then, and then Caesar Augustus decides to call for a census. And so this nine-month pregnant teenage outcast with her unwed husband puts her on a donkey, and they have to travel across the country to Bethlehem, of all places, and they get there, and oh, there's no room in the inn. So go to a manger. Now, stop. I know you know how that story ends. At least I think you do. If not, come back in a couple weeks, we'll tell you. But here's, here's how that story ends. I know you know how that story ends. Before you get to the ending of that story, go to the details of that story, please. An unwed, outcast teenage mom in a manger because the, she had to travel across the country and the inn was full. What do the details of that story tell you about how that story is going to work out? That if all you're doing is looking at the facts of the story, if all you're doing is analyzing, how's this going to go for Mary and Joseph? What would your conclusion be? To bring it even full circle back to Ruth, there's chaos in Bethlehem. Because the judges were ruling when Ruth was there, when Naomi was there. Rome is ruling when Mary and Joseph are there, and it's chaotic. They're oppressed and neglected. And yet in the same hillsides that Naomi and her husband would flee from, in the same hills of Bethlehem that Naomi and Ruth returned to many years later with empty hearts and empty hands, in the same hills of Bethlehem that Ruth and Naomi were in thousands of years later 
what's happening in the shadows of Bethlehem? What's happening in the chaos of Bethlehem? What's happening mysteriously in a manger? It's that hidden in the details of chaos and pain was a story of cosmic redemption. That just like in the book of Ruth, a kinsman redeemer has come, a greater Boaz has come to buy you back at great cost to himself. And this greater Boaz that we call Jesus, not only was he willing to pay the cost to buy you back, he came that he might treat you like royalty and welcome you in. That if you can go back to the fields where Ruth is gleaning, thinking that all is lost, and she looks up and, he, and she sees this Redeemer Boaz that she doesn't even know is her Redeemer Boaz, think about the tenderness in his eyes. Think about the gentleness in his voice. And all of it should be hurling you to Jesus. That he would literally look at her and say, go back and read Ruth chapter two. I can't wait to redeem you. Child, my precious daughter, come to me. I'm gonna take care of you. He even tells Ruth in Ruth chapter two, don't go to any other fields. I'm gonna take care of you here. You don't need to go anywhere else because I will be everything you need for me. I will give you everything you need to be okay. That's the message of Ruth, but more importantly, it's the message of Christmas. That working in the shadows, working in the pain, working in the unknowns is a story of cosmic redemption. And God loves to come through mangers and not through thrones. It's the kind of stories he writes that when you can't see him, he's always doing 10,000 things for his glory and your good. Let's pray. Jesus, there is um, chaos in many of our lives. Chaos that if you were to pause us and ask us at this point in the story, we can't tell you how redemption would happen. We don't have the language or the imagination or the foresight to know what you might be doing and so we're rehearsing this story of Christmas. We're rehearsing the kinds of stories that you write to give us hope for ourselves. That maybe just like with Ruth and Naomi, you love to bring beauty from ashes. Maybe just like with Ruth and Naomi, you love to work in the shadows and the places where we can't see. And we ask not just or not only for eyes to see you working in the shadows, but for faith to believe that that's the kind of God you are, especially when we can't see it. Give us Sabbath rest, we pray, this day as we sing out about the wonder of wonders that God is a child. In the middle of the chaos, you're here. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.